When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 14 in our series for 2020, and today's date is Friday, May the 8th. First, I'll be talking to Chief Transparency Officer of Transparent Business, Mo Vella, over in New York. An expert in remote working, he'll provide valuable insight for businesses to help make this transition to remote work. Vella also served as a Senior Advisor to Vice Presidents Biden and Al Gore. And I'll be talking to Comsec Chief Economist Craig James about the market in the week ahead. But first, let's talk to Mo Vella. Mr Vella, we have to establish what will COVID-19 do for the remote workforce. There's going to be remote workforces everywhere. Ready to pop the question? The jewellers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Absolutely, it already is, as you know, um... I mean, uh, the figures are somewhere in the 80 to 90 percent, if not even higher, of the global workforce is working remotely. Um, so it is, it's had an incredible impact on, um, on the, the requirement. Now we didn't have any choice. And I think, Mr. Gettler, one of the challenges has been, as you know, is that there was no transition period. There was no adjustment period. It was just a shock to the workforce system, right? And, um, and workforce model. Do you think this will be permanent? Um, I think that if it's handled correctly, um, I, I like to quote a show here in the U.S. called Fashion Runway, and the, the host of the show always says, make it work. 
And so this is what I've been saying in every interview about remote workforce. If we make it work, uh, if we make it work well during this pandemic, I actually believe that it will become the new normal in uh, in phases, right? In, in incrementally, I think we will move more and more over the next few years to a more robust remote workforce. And it's not just my opinion. There was a, a study out uh, by Gartner uh, that just came out in the last probably four or five days that actually interviewed a um, substantial number of managers in the middle of the pandemic who 74% of them said that they now expected that post-pandemic at least 15 to 20% of their workforce will remain remote and, and in some cases he was even higher. So I think it's going to become more and more uh, of our uh, new normal, as I call it, and more permanent. Well, how can we make this temporary structure to remote work a permanent move? Well, I think if we do, uh, we act accordingly. And let me tell you what I mean by that. There are certain things, in my opinion, um, that management, company owners, business owners, uh, and CEOs and boards of directors, for that matter, I think right now what they need to focus in on is using, well, let's, let's start with the premise. The premise is the reason all of that group I just mentioned, uh, management, let's just call them, has not moved more quickly and uh, in a welcoming manner to remote workforce model in the last eight to ten years has been because of some common concerns. Every study shows they worry about a decrease in productivity. They worry about a damage to their operational efficiencies. Uh, and I think they suffer from what most of us do, what I call the out of sight, out of mind, out of control syndrome, right? So I think combining those three concerns, it's the underlying premise why we haven't moved to a remote workforce until we were forced to uh, because of the pandemic. Um, so the number one solution to make it work for us now, make it work effectively, that I offer up as a helpful tip to management is to use technology, the solutions and the tool tech, tools technologically that are already in the marketplace. They should be utilizing and using those and leveraging those to mitigate those risks and concerns I just um, addressed. And the first one, let's talk about one you and I are using right now, video conferencing. So we don't get to see each other at the water cooler, uh, in the hallway, coming to each other's offices, meeting in the conference room. So what's the next best thing? The next best thing is exactly what you and I are doing right now, which is video conferencing on the platform of your choice, from Zoom to Skype to WhatsApp to whatever you want to pick. Pick the one that works best for you, but use this tool. Why? It creates a personalization. It allows you to have connectivity, which is the basis of effective communication. So I suggest using that technological tool. The second one, Mr. Gettler, is file sharing. We're all already comfortable with it. Google Docs and so many other options we have. So use a file sharing platform as another way to mitigate some of the risks and concerns that I um, listed earlier. 
The third one is happens to be something that uh, we make at the company I'm on the board of directors of, Transparent Business. We have a remote workforce management and coordination software. It's fantastic. It's non-invasive. It is respectful of your employees. It's employee controlled, but the result for the management is accountability and the able the uh, ability to effectively uh, manage and coordinate a remote workforce. So those types of tools exist, and we can eliminate and mitigate and alleviate all those concerns I listed by just simply using some of these incredible technology solutions and tools. Sorry, it's late. My tongue's getting a little tired. That's okay. That's okay. But uh, what's interesting there is that uh, what you're saying is that technology can actually create more trust. In the oh, absolutely. And you raised my favorite word in my helpful – I'll show you. It's on my list of helpful tips. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I always use it in the context of communication. So another tool for management right now in this remote workforce setting that is probably uh, out of the ordinary for most of them around the world, right? Um, and so these helpful tips sound kind of like – uh, rudimentary in some ways, but they're really not because most of the people we're talking to around the world have never had to deal with this yet, right? So the communication is is integral in uh, making a remote remote workforce setting effective, and and one of those reasons is to have that trust bond. And I think the reason I apply it in communication is as follows: I say communicate with your workforce this remote workforce, communicate with them and remind them that you value them, that you respect them, that you affirm them, and that you appreciate them. And so when you're communicating like that, those are the kind of messages you need to be sending. Number two, communicate and remind them that you trust them, as you just suggested, Mr. Gettler. So important to set that foundation, that you trust them and that you uh, you know that they're going to be loyal in this setting until somebody gives you a reason not to trust them or not to expect their loyalty. We want to let them know we do. So in other words, lift up your workforce, communicate with them, and let them know that you understand. Third one, during the pandemic. Post-pandemic, this next one might not be as important, but during the pandemic, as part of these communication efforts, um, this video conferencing I suggested, remind them that you, as management, that you are flexible because you understand their plight right now. You understand that there's a lot of anxiety in this new setting. You understand that maybe their children aren't in school because of the pandemic, and maybe they have to stop in the middle of the day to go play blocks on the living room floor or put their child to take their nap or play with them for a little while. Remind them as management that you understand that and that you are flexible, that you are patient, and that you are you have their back. And what will that elicit from your workforce? Trust, appreciation, gratitude, and loyalty. So thank you for bringing up trust. I fit it into this whole bucket of communication and its, its importance during this remote workforce setting.
And in effect, what management needs to say is, hey, we're all in this together. That's right. That's right. You Right now, that is – actually, it's interesting you said that because it really helps me get to the next one I usually suggest for management, which is act calm, cool, and collected in all of your communications, in all your actions, and in all your policies. Make sure your workforce knows that you are calm, you've got this under control, you trust them, and you're confident. And if you, if you demonstrate that in every policy, in every action, and in every communication, guess what you get back from your workforce? Calm, cool, collective, and guess what remote workforce has shown study after study after study? It creates a more productive workforce. Nope. So your biggest concern as a manager goes completely away. If you'll follow some of these few easy tips, your workforce productivity will go up, according to some studies, a minimum of 15%. And I've seen studies that show it can go up as high as 55 and 60% increase. So the benefits are amazing if we follow some of these um, guidelines and helpful tips. And what's extraordinary in all of this is if this becomes permanent, mm-hmm. it will create businesses that are much working like communities. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, let's, if, you're, if you're okay with it, I want to just share with you uh, and your uh, listeners just in context. Um, I want to go through in a kind of a bigger picture the, what I call the five beneficiaries of a remote workforce model. The first one we've been, you and I have already been speaking about, which is management, the employer, the company owner, right? Um, We've gone through them. Increased productivity, um, increased satisfaction from your employees, less absenteeism, less sick leave, right? Uh, Lowering lowering your health insurance burden, right? And the list is long. I've got it right here, and I I just want, I'm just hitting on the big ones. Um, You know, healthier workforce. Improved operational efficiencies, and I can go on and on. Second big beneficiary group of remote workforce models, employees. I have study after study that shows 60-70% love working remotely because it gives them a better work-life balance. The second reason they love it in study after study is the flexibility of it. And so a happier more content worker is a more motivated, more focused, and more engaged worker. That's better for the employee. It's better for the employer. Both of those groups are huge beneficiaries in a remote workforce model. The third one, the economy. There are studies that show that a remote workforce model can add up to $2 trillion to the global economy for a variety of contributions and reasons. One namely being that the average uh, savings to a company per employee per year is $11,000 in a remote workforce model. And that means that that, those employees with that extra two and three hours that they get every day in a remote workforce model will be out shopping, doing yoga, running errands, uh, attending the gym, 
And all of that is money put back into the economy. These are ways that the economy benefits up to $2 trillion in remote workforce. Number four, this is one I want to make very clear to your listeners. This is not the time for us to probably be focused on number four, but I would be remiss if I did not list it because it is a huge beneficiary of a remote workforce model, and that is the environment. You are cutting down the average commute of workers around the world by two to three hours. That means less carbon emissions and less pollutants into the air, which means cleaner air, which means a healthier workforce, which means what I said earlier, less absenteeism, less sick leave, so on and so forth. The environment and saving the planet is hugely benefited by a remote workforce. The fifth and last one that I have identified is very special to me, and that is women in the form of single moms and women who were not able to leave home to go to an on-site workforce. Through remote work, we can actually have them contribute their talents to the workforce remotely, provide their gifts in a way that they've not had access before, nor the opportunity before. They are a, an incredible beneficiary, as are people with disabilities who are homebound and are physically unable to commute to an actual work site. This remote workforce model opens the door for them to participate remotely and be a part of the global workforce and share their talents and gifts, and the same for social socioeconomically disadvantaged people who can afford to get on the bus an hour into the city to go to an actual workplace. We are now going to have access to their talents as well. The five beneficiary groups of a remote workforce model far outweighing any possible loser in a remote workforce model. Well, Mo Vella, those are very wise words. We'll all be watching it very closely and Thank you very much for your insights. It's my pleasure, and thank you for having me, and I hope we can be together, together again someday. Thank you. And now let's talk to ComSec Chief Economist Craig James. Okay, well, Craig, uh, what do you see the market in the week ahead? How do you see tracking? Well, certainly, you know, there's going to be a lot of focus on jobs this uh, this week. You know, so that'll be you know, so the big focus. Um, Thursday, we get the job figures, and uh, really, it's somewhat of a lottery in terms of trying to make you know, some predictions in terms of uh, jobs in the current environment. Making forecasts generally in the current environment is quite difficult. But um, the Commonwealth Bank Group economists have looked at you know, so the, the job figures, and they're uh, expecting you now these are figures for for the month of uh, April. Um, expecting a decline in employment of a massive 550,000. Now, you'll see the unemployment rate rise from 52 to 8%. Now, uh, the major focus, I think, in terms of the, these figures may not be in terms of the, the job loss, and it may not get to 550,000 because the, the definitions of employment yes, are going to be playing a big role in terms of trying to understand what these figures actually mean. Uh, if people are on JobKeeper, they're technically em employed, but they're not working any hours, not working any uh, sort of hours in the week. And uh, that may be the, the major focus in terms of the, the figures. So when we look at these figures on, on Thursday, don't just look at the number of jobs lost, don't just look at the, uh, the unemployment rate, but also look in terms of the number of hours worked. And that will give you a know, sort of real sense about you know, sort of how much impact uh, 
COVID-19 is indicating in terms of the economy? Uh, of course, uh, it raises questions about underemployment as well. Well, it is a case. I think you, you've got to look at you know, so all the indi- indications because certainly you know, sort of people you know, sort of in the, the current environment say, look, I'm not working you know, sort of at the moment. I've been you know, sort of laid off. Clearly, you know, so I'm underemployed or underutilised. So the, both those definitions will come into it. So, yeah, I think it is a case. Um, of course, we look at the, the figures to be able to get a sense about you know, so how the economy is being impacted by the, uh, the virus crisis. Uh, so we're looking at yes, the number of jobs lost, um, impacting that in terms of consumer spending, in terms of broader economic activity. We're looking at in terms of the number of hours worked and people aren't working the number of hours that they want to. Say they're working you know, at a cafe and restaurant, you know, so they've closed down. Clearly, they want to be working, but they can't work. Now, um, I suppose what we need to overlay on this, that if people you know, sort of getting the job seeker payments and the job keeper payments, uh, that will support their overall spending in the, the economy. So it just shows you that you know, this current time, it is quite difficult in terms of doing economic forecasting. And uh, once we you know, sort of look at the, these uh, figures, then we've got to extrapolate from that and say, what does that mean for spending? What does that mean for the economy? Indeed. And uh, if uh, people are on JobKeeper, and for that matter, JobSeeker has been doubled, uh, that would have an impact on spending, wouldn't it? Well, it, it does. And yes, yeah, so we've heard a number of indications in terms of JobKeeper, uh, where the, the number, where the, where the recipients are actually getting you know, sort of dollars in the hand more than what they would have, you know, in terms of their, their place of employment. Now, that's just because of the simplification in terms of the the uh, definition, you know, sort of, of job keeper, um, giving everyone, you know, sort of effectively the same amount. Now, some people may be, you know, sort of perhaps overpaid to some extent, some people are underpaid, but in the current environment, you want to give people more dollars, you know, so rather than less dollars to be able to keep the, the economy moving. But I suppose when we're looking at the the week, it's those job figures which will really dominate on on Thursday. But uh, we will have plenty of other indicators to be watching us you know, as we go through through the week. Um, Tuesday we'll get an economic statement from the, uh, the federal treasurer as well as the uh, the finance minister. Uh, they'll get an update in terms of the economy. We'll get the latest uh, business survey from National Australia Bank, and of course there were dire results that we saw you know, in the previous uh, survey. Uh, confidence levels at the lowest levels on record, the biggest fall in terms of business conditions. So uh, those figures on Tuesday, we'll see whether we get some improvement in that, whether uh, businesses are a little bit more positive in terms of the outlook. Uh, consumer sentiment, yes, yeah, so that's certainly been yes, improving in recent times uh, as we're getting towards a, a recovery phase in terms of the economy. Those figures on Tuesday and also on Tuesday, very busy day on Tuesday, tourist arrival figures uh, will be released. During the the, um, uh, the month of uh, February, we, we saw a 12.5% fall in tourist arrivals. That was the biggest fall that we've seen on record and biggest fall in departures, 2.9%. Uh, that was the, the biggest fall that we've seen in the order of two years. So we'll get that, those figures out for March. The interesting thing is, the Bureau of Statistics is providing more and more information yesterday and on the Wednesday, the day after that, there will be provisional overseas travel figures for the month of April. So we're getting more and more timely figures in terms of the the economy and that's helping um, policy makers and analysts making sense about how things are travelling. But 
Also on Wednesday, we'll get the, the Westpac gauge of consumer confidence and we'll get the wage figures uh, for, for the March quarter, likely to show a growth of half of 1% in, in the, uh, the quarter, 2.1% on the, over the year. But certainly as we look out over the next 6 to 12 months, uh, wage growth is going to be effectively you know, pretty much flat and um, uh, we're going to continue to see weak wage pressures and that's going to put downward pressure on prices. Well, wage pressure is going to be interesting too because of uh, the issues of uh, unemployment. I mean, when you have a high unemployment, it's going to impact on wages. Yeah, it's all about supply and demand, isn't it? Yes, ultimately, when we're dealing yes, with, with the economy and if... Um uh, there's uh, less demand. There's plenty of people wanting to to work, but not enough, you know, sort of jobs out there. You know, sort of clearly, you know, sort of people are willing to to take on jobs uh, with a lower level of wage. Uh, perhaps, you know, sort of willing to get, you know, sort of pay cuts to to, to be able to work in the you know, sort of position. So you could see, you know, sort of wages, you know, sort of really flatlining. Little or no growth in wages over uh, the, the the next 12 months. Uh, but of course, what we're going to see in terms of inflation as well. Inflation pretty much, you know, so flat as well. So that just shows you, you know, so the when you have a significant slowdown in terms of the economy, significant um, uh, contraction in terms of uh, demand, um, and uh, that puts downward pressure on prices, downward pressure in terms of spending across the economy, and and, and that highlights the the fact that um, uh, mo- most economists are expecting a very significant fall in terms of output over the, uh, the the June quarter, something in the order of eight and a half, nine percent, likely to see you know, sort of decline. Yes, you know, so we haven't any seen anything like that here in Australia since probably the end of the Second World War, where we had significant declines there. And then you've got to go back to the depression of the 1930s to see you know, a decline of that order of magnitude. And of course, they weren't quarterly results back then. Yes, we're dealing with annual results. So really, you know, sort of unprecedented, you know, so the, the drop off in terms of activity. Of course, um, there will be a recovery and we're looking to that recovery phase. And uh, hopefully, you know, so the June quarter will be the worst once we move into the September and December quarters. We're hoping for uh, quite a nice bounce back. But of course, a lot's going to depend on just whether that virus has been contained, uh, treatments that are coming out for it, vaccines which are coming out for it. You know, so there's a lot of uncertainty about the about the future. But um, if we get the more optimistic um, assessments or scenarios, uh, then uh, we're more likely to see a V-shaped recovery in terms of the economy. Well, it's very hard doing any models, seeing that the economic conditions are outside any of our lifetimes. Well, yes, I think you know, sort of most people don't want to be forecasting in, in the current environment because um, really uh, it's, it's, we, we haven't seen anything like this as unprecedented. You know, sort of it hasn't been caused by an economic calamity. It hasn't been caused by a financial crisis as we saw a bit over 10 or 11 years ago. It's been caused by an outside event uh, and, and something which uh, the only parallel which we really have to it is back in you know, so the a uh, hundred years or so so ago with the Spanish flu and uh, and of course we don't have too many economic records to be able to determine yes what was going on at that point in time but um, um, by all accounts it was a little bit different um, didn't have the the same sort of a global you know, sort of uh, focus lots of people you know sort of dying but if you look at back at the uh, the share market at that time share market actually held up so. Um, uh, just to highlight the fact that uh, really even going back you know, so 100 years to the uh, Spanish flu, it's you know, sort of just hard to be able to find a similar sort of parallel. You know, even 100 years ago, those times were completely different. 
Well, it'll be fascinating to watch. And Craig James, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Leon. So what's happening in the news? Well, Goldman Sachs Group and Morgan Stanley economists said there is evidence the world economy is starting to recover from the coronavirus and the restrictions placed on business and consumers. Economic activity has probably bottomed now, Jan Hatsius, chief economist at Goldman Sachs, said in a report to clients on Monday. Lockdowns and social distancing are starting to diminish as many countries are cautiously reopening their economies. Goldman Sachs predicted advanced economies will contract an average 32% in the current quarter before growing 16% in the next three months and 13% in the final quarter of the year. At Morgan Stanley, Chief Economist Chetan Ayer said in a report on Sunday that a number of the high-frequency indicators we track suggest that the global economy is in the process of bottoming out. But, in a separate note also released on Monday... HSBC Holdings PLC economist James Pomeroy warned against betting on a sharp turnaround in the global economy. He cited numbers from China suggesting consumer spending may be slow to bounce back as people will remain nervous about shopping or returning to work. As governments increasingly ease back on virus restrictions, another threat highlighted is the potential for a second wave of the outbreak, further disrupting activity. The biggest downside risk to the global economic outlook is that infection rates re-accelerate sharply as the economy reopens, Hatsius says. After all, our recent analysis confirms that much of the medical improvement has resulted from lockdowns and social distancing. And Donald Trump has threatened to axe the first phase of the US-China trade deal if Beijing misses import targets agreed before the pandemic hit amid growing tensions between the two superpowers. The US president said he would cancel the agreement struck after lengthy negotiations if China failed to buy an additional $200 billion of American goods and services over the next two years as tensions rise about the origins of the coronavirus outbreak. He said, if they don't buy, we'll terminate the deal. Very simple. Mr Trump had hinted he could impose new tariffs on China, claiming he had seen evidence linking a Wuhan disease research laboratory to the coronavirus pandemic, a theory many scientists see as unlikely. And COVID-19 has smashed the demand for workers. ANZ Australian job ads fell a massive 53.1% in April to be down 62.2% for the year. In trend terms, job ads declined 11.2% for the month and 33.9% for the year. This is more than five times the previous record monthly fall of 11.3% in January 2009, which was during the GFC. And almost one million Australians have lost their jobs in social distancing measures to limit the spread of COVID-19 ramped up, according to official figures. The ABS says the number of jobs in Australia fell by 7.5% between March 14 and April the 18th. Jobs in accommodation and food services slumped by a third, while 27% of arts and recreation jobs went. The job losses have been most severe in Victoria, Tasmania and South Australia. With slightly more than 13 million employed people in Australia in early March, that means almost 1 million people lost their jobs in over a month. The ABS said job losses were heaviest in accommodation and food services, where more than one-third of workers lost employment, followed by arts and recreation services, where 27% of staff felt found themselves out of work. Those aged between 20 and 29 and over 70 were the worst affected by the job cuts in the accommodation and food services sector, with more than 40% losing work. Given the prevalence of young people in hospitality, it is not surprising that they've been hit hardest by job losses across the economy, with 18.5% of jobs for under-20s gone since mid-March and 11.8% of jobs for age and 30s. Women have also been affected more in terms of job losses, with an 8.1% fall compared to a 6.2% slide for men. 
Meanwhile, the Reserve Bank of Australia has kept rates on hold at its record low of 0.25% as Australia continues to battle with the coronavirus impact on the economy. And Australian residential building approvals fell 4% in March, following a revised 19.4% jump in February, according to the ABS. Lower population growth, higher unemployment, declining household income and consumer uncertainty are all likely to reduce demand for investment properties, which will put downward pressure on residential construction, particularly for the apartment market. And Australia's coronavirus lockdown will see gross domestic product plunge 10% in the June quarter, wiping $50 billion from the economy, according to Treasurer Josh Frydenberg. The Treasury, forecast cited by Frydenberg, as is a further indication that Australia may be spiralling towards its first recession since 1991, as large tracks of the service sector are shuttered to stem the outbreak. The damage to the economy has already forced the central bank and conservative government to deliver a massive fiscal monetary injection worth 16.4% of GDP to cushion households and help businesses to survive and retain workers. As a small open economy, the weak global backdrop may also constrain Australia's economic recovery, according to Bloomberg economist James McIntyre, who has forecast the nation will suffer its deepest recession in 90 years. But the vast majority of businesses could be up and running in less than two months after the National Cabinet approved a comprehensive set of health protocols to enable commerce to resume in a COVID-safe environment. Treasurer Josh Frydenberg says he wants large swathes of the economy running at full speed by July. Declaring we now need to get one million Australians back to work, Prime Minister Scott Morrison and the state and territory leaders agreed on Tuesday that when they next met on Friday, they would lift restrictions in three steps with the aim of establishing a sustainable COVID-19 safe economy in July 2020. Each state will move at its own pace with the common end goal of July. While not every business will be able to reopen, such as those that rely on international tourism, Mr Morrison agreed the aim was to have the overwhelming majority back on their feet. He said the work done over the past six weeks to suppress the spread of the coronavirus while simultaneously boosting the capacity of the health system, as well as having a 5 million people download the COVID-safe app so far, means that we are in a much stronger position to resist and deal with any increase in cases. And a quarterly scorecard for women's financial progress has recorded its weakest start to a calendar year since 2015, as job cuts start to pile on amid the coronavirus crisis. The Financy Women's Index rose by 0.4 percentage points to a revised 71.3 points in the March quarter, compared to 71 points in the December period. The quarterly pace was the weakest since September 2018, with a slowdown in full-time employment growth among women and rising unemployment relative to men weighing on the result. With COVID-19 driving expectations that female employment will worsen and exacerbate gender gaps in pay, superannuation and unpaid work, it's likely that the pace of progress will slow further and impact the time frame to economic equality with men in Australia. Financing reported the index result means that based on the rate of progress, economic equality in Australia is at least 32 years away. But the group has speculated the time frame could expand depending on the long-term impact of COVID-19. The time frame for achieving gender equality in superannuation was 19 years. Based on 2017-18 data, the report noted women are retiring with 31% less super than men. But the gender gap is likely to widen if the pandemic has a sustained impact on employment and wage trends. Full-time job numbers has remained largely consistent, up only 0.1% to 3.35 million during the quarter, while male full-time employment rose by 0.9% to 5.49 million. Prior to the pandemic, full-time employment growth for women had been stronger, but the rate of men has now become 10 times that for women. And Westpac Banking Corp has 
delivered a massive 70% slump in first half cash profit to $993 million and elected to defer the dividend until there's greater clarity on the impact that COVID-19 will have on bad debts. Westpac Chief Executive Peter King cheated the hit to profits back to the likely cost of settling the Austrac matter, its ongoing response to recommendations from the Hain Royal Commission, and growing projections of the cost of the virus crisis. And blood products giant CSL has commenced development of its COVID-19 fighting immunoglobin product at its Melbourne-based Broadmeadows facility using the antibodies from plasma of recovered coronavirus patients. The development is the first step towards commercialising the investigative product targeted at critically ill patients and will be conducted in two phases. And a week after the government unveiled its COVID-safe smartphone app with the grand promises about its potential to track the spread of the coronavirus among the community, it is facing a problem experienced by tech startups the world over. A failure to attract enough users. While in any normal circumstances, a new app attracting 5 million sign-ups in its first week would cause a company founder to harbour dreams of a future fortune, it is well below the threshold needed to make COVID safe worthwhile. Users have complained about technical problems with the app itself, which has been acknowledged as not working as well on iPhones as it does on Androids. Prime Minister Scott Morrison originally suggested he wanted 40% of Australians to download the app, whereas Chief Medical Officer Brendan Murphy said it would need contact tracing data of more, for more than 50% of the population before he could be confident in using it as a factor in suggesting reduced restrictions. Australia's population is 25.7 million, so it's clear that even with children removed from the numbers, we're miles away from getting where they really want to be. And Transurban said that traffic on its toll roads was observably hit by COVID-19 from early March. For the week starting April 26, traffic was down 44% across the group. Traffic will remain sensitive to future government responses, the firm said, although there are early signs of traffic stabilisation. As a result, Transurban's $6.7 billion Westgate Tunnel project in Melbourne will be delivered late and will not be finished until 2023, the toll road group said. And the 20 bidders for Virgin Australia, including Richard Branson, Andrew Forrest and Australian Superback BGH, have been in frantic to determine which bidders can team up as the race to save the stricken airline heats up. Administrators Alert said on Thursday at the first meeting with creditors that 20 parties had expressed interest in buying Virgin, although just eight had signed non-disclosure agreements. Bidders with no airline experience are seeking to partner with those who have airline experience. Indicative offers are due within the next fortnight. The talks mean that the 20 potential bidders could consolidate to a dozen or less over the next fortnight as the consortiums sharpen their bids and any tyre kickers are weeded out. Local private equity group GBGH Capital is working with Australian Super on a potential deal and is among the front local front runners. BGH, led by Ben Gray and advised by PwC head Luke Sayers and lawyer Leon Svier, has been pushing hard on its Team Australia advantage. But talks are believed to include Singapore's state-owned investment fund, Temasek, which has an indirect interest in Virgin through its controlling stake in Singapore Airlines, which owns 20% of Virgin. Temasek was one of the large limited partners in BGH's initial $2.5 billion equity fund when it was set up in 2018 and said it would look to co-invest in companies alongside BGH. And potential new owners of Virgin Australia are on notice from Qantas Chief Executive Alan Joyce that there will be ultra-cheap domestic airfares when the coronavirus lockdown is lifted. Joyce's declaration that Jetstar will be offering lots more seat at $39 each and special deals at $19 each on the popular Sydney to Melbourne group could throw a spanner in the sales pitch from Virgin Administrator Vaughan Strawbridge. An electronics and hardware giant JB Hi-Fi has ended the third quarter of its financial year with a bumper sales result thanks to an unprecedented number of Australians working from home. JB Hi-Fi told investors on Wednesday comparable sales at its Australian stores for the three months through to March climbed 11.3% 
one of its highest ever comparable growth figures for a single quarter. At the same time, retail sales have soared by a record number in March as panic buying ahead of COVID-19 lockdowns spurred a huge interest in consumer activity. According to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, retail sales in March rose by 8.5%, well up on the 0.5% increase in February. The previous record had been set in June 2000, when consumers scrambled to buy goods before the implementation of the goods and services tax in July 2000. And bring forward the current pipeline of wind and solar projects will create more than 50,000 jobs and inject $50 billion worth of investment into the alien economy, according to the Clean Energy Council. The industry group said in a report released that accelerated investment in renewable energy could power Australia's economic recovery on the other side of the coronavirus. It said bringing forward approved projects would also mean lower power bills, help Australia become a clean energy superpower and create jobs in regional communities that are normally left behind. The industry group argues that taxpayers do not need to carry the full financial burden of the project as private investors have a big appetite for investment in renewables. The council argues that a clean recovery should also develop a national home battery program, switch government and community buildings to solar and batteries and commit government agencies to 100% renewables, build 21st century transmission and distribution networks and an electric vehicle charging network, support investment in large-scale energy storage and encourage the development of offshore wind energy, help major energy customers secure low-cost supply and become globally competitive and establish Australia's renewable hydrogen capability. And that's it for this week. And next week, I'll be talking to the CTO of Fornetics and cybersecurity expert Chuck White on Zoom bombing and how to protect your remote workforce's teleconferences from outside hackers. And I'll be talking to IFM Investors Chief Economist Alex Joyner about the dire economic outlook. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter, talking bizbzz, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing you talking business next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultrasoft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultrasoft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist-approved, so fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.